Welcome to the Integrative Gardening Podcast, where we learn to skillfully create gorgeous, robust, wildlife-friendly gardens. And here's your host, Pandora Patterson. My guest today is Nigel Palmer, and he's the author of the book, The Regenerative Grower's Guide to Garden Amendments, using locally sourced materials to make mineral and biological extracts and ferments. I think you're going to be amazed at his recipes for building healthy, strong plants. I've tried a few in my garden this year, and I was surprised at what a difference it made in the health of my vegetable plants and their ability to repel pests. And now on to the interview. So Nigel, welcome to my podcast. And I was hoping today that you could share a little bit about your book and tell us how you came to write the book and, you know, a little bit about your background. Okay, great. Well, thank you for inviting me to join you today, Pandora. Always a pleasure. Let's see. Uh, background. So my background is um, a, a human being living on Earth pretty much. And I've always had a garden, gardening since I was about 20. And my parents had gardens uh, coming from Europe. They grew a lot of the vegetables that they like to eat. Yeah, gardening was always just a fun thing to do. Uh, we had, you know, all kinds of things that we grew. And uh, throughout my adult life, both my wife and I enjoyed gardening. It was a hobby. It was fun. It was great to introduce our children to gardening. Uh, but at some point, gardening got to be more than just a hobby. It became the way we could get quality food. The availability of quality food has waned in this country over the last 50 years. Uh, and finding good quality food became more and more difficult, specifically if you uh, read the label or measure the refractive index of some of the fruits and vegetables that we're eating today, especially here in New England, where in the wintertime, it's really tough to find greens, for instance, unless you grew them yourself. Well, as we went along that path, it was, I don't know, probably about 20 or more years ago, 25 years ago, we were trying to grow good food and lots of it, trying to grow a year's supply of garlic or a year's supply of fruit or a year's supply of potatoes. And it became harder and harder to do so. So I started looking around to, for ways to find uh, nutrients for my plants. And I've never been one to go to a store. I never bought, bought fertilizers or pesticides or herbicides in a store. When we were young, it was a matter of getting manure from cows that were around here and tilling that into the soil. And so I started thinking to myself, well, indigenous people have been growing food for a very, very long period of time, and they've done it to sustain civilizations for a very long time. So how did they do it, and how are they doing it still today? And that sent me on a journey to try and figure out how they used to do this stuff. And, geez, it took a long time to really find sources of information that were readable and understandable. And one quickly realizes that just about every culture has their own ways of doing these things, but they all basically boil down to 
using the material that's essentially in their backyard, I use that figuratively, and working that into the soil, understanding a little bit more about the soil, understanding the soil biology, as well as the minerals that are needed in the soil for plants to utilize. So yeah, off I went doing this stuff. The Korean natural farming books were really informative and there were just about every culture had it. Rotting uh, weeds in a bucket was a a great source initially. It smells terrible, but plants don't seem to mind. And uh, after a long time of doing that stuff, I started teaching at my wife's school. She asked me if I'd teach the garden portion of her program. The Institute of Sustainable Nutrition has a one-year certification program, and it talks about the science of nutrition. It talks about kitchen medicine. uh, It talks about cooking, and it talks about gardening. And she asked me to teach some classes in the garden portion of that. And that was about 10 years ago, and so I rounded up some of my material and started putting together packages of information and teaching that program. And after about eight years, I had a lot of material pretty well consolidated into forums that were pretty well organized and offered the opportunity to write a book. And so I originally wrote a recipe book of uh, uh, recipes to make different biological and mineral amendments and wrote that up and then realized that, well, it needed some context with which to actually apply these mineral and biological amendments. So I wrote that up as a second part of the book and Chelsea Green was kind enough to publish it for me. So off I went on this new journey of not only trying to grow healthy and good vegetables here at home, but also recognizing the need to share this information with others. It was very, very difficult for me to find this information and to consolidate it. And I felt it was really important that others have this information at their fingertips. So I tried to write something that was essentially a toolbox that others could use to grow uh, healthy, high-quality food in their backyard using the resources that are in their backyard and not purchasing things at a, a box store or a hardware store or whatever. A lot of the stuff they sell in those places are toxic, don't do any good to the environment or ourselves. And so this is a truly a sustainable and regenerative way to grow things in your garden. And of course, it's scalable to the farm environment as well. So that's kind of where I got to writing this book. As far as my personal background, I was an aerospace engineer for 37 years. I have degrees in engineering, and I've basically focused on physics in my engineering uh, education, both optics and electricity and magnetism, as well as chaos and fractals theories. And these are very nonlinear ideas, and these ideas have helped me to try and navigate uh, some of the the nuances of gardening and the nuances of what makes sense and trying to put some of the, the models, if you will, the, the, the ideas of gardening into a context that people can understand. We live in a world where we use models to explain much of what goes on in our life around us, whether it's coming to a stop sign and the light turns green and most people just go. They don't even look left or right because they have this model in their mind that it's safe to do so. And so I thought that 
it's really, really important to have a model within which to garden, a context within which to make uh, sensible decisions about what to do. And so I, uh, in the first part of my book, I've, I've taken these these ideas and organization skills that I've had in the past to try and organize a model that people could use with which to make decisions. And so the book is essentially a toolbox of a model of ideas that, and a bunch of tools that you can use so that just about anybody can can pick it up and go forward and grow things, but have context within which to do those things. Yeah, nice. So you started out with kind of a scientific type of mind and and it sounds like your curiosity and your interest in doing things that are environmental and that you can just do you know uh, self-sufficiently that led you to create your own amendments I think it's interesting that you you know didn't start off like buying these things. So a lot of us in our gardens, we are buying, you know, different types of fertilizer. We're going out and buying maybe bought bags of soil and compost. A lot of people don't even, you know, know how to make compost. So is that something also that you do? Do you make compost? Absolutely. One of the things that I've learned over the years is I don't think I can make enough compost, especially high quality compost. And learning to make a compost that has the mineral diversity that is needed, not only for the compost pile itself, the biology in a compost pile needs a diverse mineral structure in order to make diverse compounds that are needed in the compost structure. So unless you're adding uh, minerals of some sort to your compost pile, you may be missing the boat. But yeah, to, to, to just to back up, it indeed, the science of gardening is elusive to many people because many people go to the store and buy quote unquote fertilizers. Well, what the heck is in these fertilizers? Right? Read the bag, everybody. Read the side of the bag and try and figure out what's actually in these things. And then when we talk about minerals, one of the things that was uh, first identified was, well, you need these proportions of minerals in order to grow uh, healthy plants. Okay, well, what are these minerals? Well, you can read about what Albrecht said about these things, and you're going to learn about the 18 different minerals that are needed out there and the proportions of calcium and magnesium and how many parts per million boron and selenium and molybdenum and manganese and blah, 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 on and on and on. Well, the first thing that really blew me away was, okay, cool, so I need all these minerals. Where the heck am I going to find them? Where am I going to find cobalt, for instance? And I thought to myself, geez, that's daunting. And then I thought, okay, well, I need one part per million cobalt. Well, where am I going to find cobalt? And how am I going to distribute one part per million cobalt on my garden? It was like, I don't know how to do this, right? And, and then you go to the store and you ask somebody, hey, do you have any cobalt? And they look at you funny. And so, okay, how about molybdenum? Right, and so you, when you now you now you look into well, where do we get cobalt? Well, it turns out that cobalt is mined in Africa, and it's a conglomerate environment, or it's not necessarily the most environmentally 
prosperous thing for the people that are actually mining it. And I don't think I want to support that. So what am I going to do? Where am I going to find cobalt? The answer is, well, you can find plants that have cobalt in them and you can ferment them using a fermenting fermented plant juice recipe. And then you can find cobalt in those recipes. So I went and did that. So I didn't know this at the time, but I went and fermented plants. And then being that scientific background kind of guy, I thought, okay, well, let's see what's in these things. And so I sent the fermented plant juices and the vinegar extractions to labs to try and figure out what was in them. And guess what? There's cobalt in them. There's molybdenum in them. There's the broad spectrum of all these minerals that plants need in them. Wow. Okay. Now I know how to get those minerals. Now I know that I can use those minerals as a foliar spray and apply them to my garden. Guess what? Because they're in, because they're from plants and they're fermented, they are in forms that plants can actually utilize immediately. So now I found a source of molybdenum, cobalt, manganese, uh, selenium, zinc, copper, blah, blah, blah. And I have them in shelf-stable forms that I can have on my shelf to use at the ready. And I can apply them as foliar sprays to provide my plants the nutrients they need. All of a sudden, I have a short-term mineralization strategy for feeding my plants. And it basically costs me just about nothing. And I'm using the plants in my backyard. So this becomes A, sustainable, and B, regenerative. And it does so without the high cost of importation, the high cost of transportation, the high cost of all of the things that go along with products that you're purchasing in a store. Yeah, I mean, just going to the store and looking at the different things that they have, you know, a lot of them have the the basic three and then you look someplace else on the internet and it's like oh there's 14 basic nutrients and then you know another website there's like actually maybe 42 so that's i guess there needs to be more research into that but how did you find out what what nutrients the plants need okay so that's uh, essentially reading science tech books. Uh, there are many books out there. There are a few real, real good ones. Marshner's book was real good. Uh, let's see. Are you interested in some books that you might want to look at? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Always interested in books. Okay. So the two, Marshner is a real big one. Mineral Nutrition of Higher Plants was a big one. And let's see. I don't know anything by by Albrecht and and the teachings of Albrecht. Uh, let's see. I'm just looking through some of the the things in my bi- bibliography. What was that other one? And this is the one that's in the back of your book. Yeah, it's in the back of my book. Es- Michael Estrella, the ideal soil. That talks a lot about Logan Lab tests and those minerals that are in that Logan te- Lab test. Also, The Intelligent Gardener, Steve Solomon's book, talks about those sorts of things. There was a nice soil book, The Nature and Properties of Soil by Brady, that was pretty in-depth soil kind of book. What was that one? There's some old, yeah, that was an old, beautiful book by a, a Russian writer in 1961, Soil Microisms and Higher Plants. 
Then there's the uh, Mineral Nutrition and Plant Density. That was a great book. Uh, that talked an awful lot about nutrients. Uh, that was one that Don Huber was involved with. And the other great resource that I found was James Duke's database, James Duke's Phytochemical and Ethnobotanical Database, put out by the USDA. And here he lists thousands of plants and actually lists the mineral content of those plants. So now I have a place where I can go and look and, and determine the parts per million that are actually in certain plants. So, you know, around here in, in, in New England, we've got uh, sassafras, for instance, trees. And so the leaves of sassafras have some good minerals in them. The other thing that I learned was that weeds are nature's way of remineralizing the soil. And so when your ground has an abundance of weeds in it, that's a good indication of what minerals uh, are needed in that soil. And Let's see, what was a good example? Oh, okay. So quackgrass. Uh, uh, quackgrass is the bane of many farmers, but that quackgrass, if you ferment it and uh, use it as a mineral amendment, you find that it has many of the minerals that you need in your soil. And so that was a winner. So looking at the soil yourself, just understanding the soil and what you have growing in that soil can give information about the weeds or the plants that you could use to uh, mineralize that soil. I, I guess the long and short was just hanging out. Oh, in Acres USA, listening to John John Kemp speak at Acres USA. Jerry Bernetti was a great resource uh, back then. Don Huber was a great resource at Acres USA. Uh, so there, there were many people at the conferences that I listened to that gave some information Geez, but uh, the long and short is to is is finding good books and, and reading them and, and getting information. Sometimes you just get little pieces of information from each book. Sometimes you'll find that the information in many of the books you'll find are supportive of some of the other conversations. So it's it's essentially a journey, just like any other learning and trying, trying and error, trial trial and error. I like to tell people that a garden is like a canvas and you get a new canvas every year to try out your gardening skills and learn a little bit more about what's going on. And of course, every year is different anyhow because of temperature and rain and all the other things that go on, all the chemicals that are in the atmosphere that we decide to fill it with that come raining down on your garden. All of these variations are going to have effects as well. So every year you get a chance to start over and try something new. And here we are in March 24th, 2022 with another brand new year ahead of us. Isn't it? It's just so exciting. My tomatoes are starting to come up. My onions are coming up. I've got uh, radishes and carrots coming up. And of course the stinging nettles up. And so I'm already making teas out of that and uh, uh, for my morning tea and the rhubarb's coming up and the, the fruit trees need to be pruned. And here we go, a new canvas, ready, set, go. Yeah, it is. It's like a brand new experiment every year. I mean, that's what really gets me into gardening. It's like, there's always something to do, always something to learn on that. Yeah, I'm just kind of amazed by, like, not only uh, did you compile all of this really great uh, information in your book, but uh, the appendixes, summary of amended recipes, 
optimum soil mineral amounts. These are all lists in the back of the book that have such great information. What's this? A sample of Dr. James Duke's phytochemical and ethnobotanical database. My goodness. Yeah, you've really done your research. Plant mineral deficiency indicators, amendment mineral analysis, and then there's all these charts with the different minerals and analysis. Refractive index brick scale. Yeah, and then the glossary. I mean, this is just even the back of the book has so much information. It's it's awesome. My husband has taken the book and put in all these different markers and he just can't wait to, he's the one that does our compost and like the compost teas and all that. And so he just can't wait, you know, to get started this year with mixing some of these things up. Good. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your garden and what type of gardens you have there at home? Mm, sure. Uh, so we're backyard gardeners is probably the easiest way to explain it. Both Joan and I like to garden. Joan primarily grows herbs and perennials and flowers in her garden. She has uh, several of them. I think we have probably, I don't know, four or five herb flower type gardens. Uh, two main ones where she grows most of uh, the herbs uh, that we consume She's a really good herbalist and is very knowledgeable about not only the herbs, but also how to process them, tincture them, dry them, making all kinds of kitchen medicine, I think is the best way to call it. We also have uh, fruit trees and, and uh, shrubs, berries, hazelnuts, elderberries, blueberries, blackcurrants, peaches, strawberries, grapes, and we have multiple beds of some of these things out there. So we grow all the fruit that we eat for a year here. What have we got? Mulberries, gooseberries. I don't know. It goes on and on and on. And so the, the, the nice thing about the berries and the fruit is it offers just incredibly good quality food, right? One of the things that was amazing was when I did analysis on uh, some of these fruits. Let me back up a little bit. When feeding peach tree, for instance, uh, one of the best things to feed a peach tree is a fermented plant juice of the peaches themselves. Uh, the peach is the quintessential essence of a peach tree. That's its best effort. That's what it puts out every year for reproduction. And so fermenting peaches and feeding those to your peach trees is a really good idea. Same with tomatoes. The quintessential food source for a tomato is a to a tomato plant is a tomato. So taking the tomatoes and, and fermenting them, making a fermented plant juice of tomatoes to feed your tomatoes the following year is just a great idea. So when I did analysis of the fermented plant juices of these fruits, I found that they were loaded with minerals. And actually one of the appendices is in the back of my book lists some of that analysis. And I'd also like to talk about the listing of analysis on my website as well, if we can get to it. But the point is that when I did analysis on some of the fruit that I was going to feed back to my plants, I recognized, wow, no wonder fruit is so important in our diet because it has the cobalts and, 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 and the trace minerals that we're looking for, for health. And so rather than buy something in the store that's been sitting in a box for months, depending on where it was grown, it was probably harvested early 
Uh, so it may or may not have all of the minerals that you want in it. By short-circuiting that whole system and having your own fruit, it makes a heck of a lot of sense, to me at least, and probably to anybody else listening if they thought about it for a minute. So where does that fruit that you're eating come from? How was it harvested? Was it harvested at the peak of its nutritional capability? And what has happened to it since it was harvested? And what's happened to those nutrients in time before you got to eat it? So we're, oh yeah, fruits. So we grow a lot of fruit. And then we have vegetable gardens. Uh, We like to grow garlic and potatoes. Those are like wicked staples. Uh, I haven't bought potatoes or garlic from a store for a really long time, 20 something years, because we grow enough of it ourselves. And guess what? It tastes great. And I know what's in it and there's nothing bad in it. We also grow tomatoes. And then I try and I grow many things differently every year, but primarily um, we have two relatively large vegetable beds and there's a couple of small ones kicking around too. And I experiment with growing things in the fruit trees as well. Uh, Last year I grew some shell beans uh, underneath my peaches, for instance. So uh, I'm experimenting with companion planting ideas and incorporating all of these different garden spaces to learn more and more each year about what works and what doesn't work and things like that is part of our garden philosophy. So in short, we're, we're kind of, we're backyard gardeners. Well, we had chickens for years, we've had bees for years, and we've had turkeys, but mostly it's just, you know, growing in the backyard. And nowadays, I've, I've retired from my career as an engineer, and so I have far more time to really experiment and and do these sorts of things. So every year we try something new, some things work, some things don't, some things aren't going to work because of the time that that year just didn't work for them. And I think the important thing is to grow as diverse uh, crops as you possibly can, and then to learn to save it. How are you going to, so you grow 50 or 100 potato plants and you're going to get, call it 100 pounds of potatoes just for talking. Well, what are you going to do with all those potatoes? Do you have a place to store them? What temperature do they need to be stored at? Potatoes like to be really cold, close to freezing, just above freezing, for instance. So where are you going to put all those potatoes? So it's not just learning to grow these things. It's then learning, well, what are you going to do about it? Uh, Stinging nettle I mentioned earlier, it's one of my favorite herbs and I like to have stinging nettle tea every day. Uh, So now is the time where I'm going to start harvesting my stinging nettle and dehydrating it and putting it into glass jars that are sealed uh, so that I can drink stinging nettle for the year. Beans. Beans are a great example of making dilly beans, for instance. So you can grow uh, many, many rows of beans, but what are you going to do with them? How are you going to make it so that you can eat those dilly beans all through the year? So using fermentations, like uh, using your dill pickle recipe on your dilly beans, for instance, to get those through the year. Uh, How are you going to keep your fruit? How are you going to keep your garlic? How are you going to... So the whole idea is to grow enough for a year's worth of stuff for your family, but also how are you going to maintain that? How are you going to make it so that it actually makes through the year? So the gardening practices here is is one of, yeah, I'm a backyard gardener, but guess what? We like to grow enough so that we can eat it for the year. And so it's developing that whole strategy of not only how are you going to grow high quality food, but how are you going to keep that high quality food for the year to eat and enjoy? Yeah, thanks for telling us about your garden. And it sounds like you have quite a few areas, you know, to experiment with different types of things. 
And thanks, you know, for being on the podcast today. Next time we will get more into the different science and the different amendments that you make. And do you want to tell people the name of your book and where they can find it and where they can find you on the internet? Sure. Uh, Let's see. It's called The Regenerative Grower's Guide to Garden Amendments, and it's published by Chelsea Green. Chelsea Green is a great place to purchase the book for those of you that are interested in purchasing it from the source. And let's see, you can find me online at nigel-palmer.com. That's my website. And uh, let's see, you can write me a letter. Uh, If you go on my website, you can actually find an address that you can write a letter. I don't know if anybody writes letters anymore, but uh, there's also uh, an email address on my website as well. So probably my website is probably the best place to find different places to contact me. It's got phone numbers and addresses and it's got an Instagram thing and a Facebook thing and all of the stuff that uh, people need to find people with these days. Okay. Sounds like you're all over the place. And <laughs> thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. All right. Thank you. Talk to you again soon. Pandora. Thanks for joining us for the Integrative Gardening Podcast. Learn more about the resources in this podcast and about garden design on our website at integrativegardening.com. You can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram 